Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. Hello, Alan. Good to speak to you again. Thanks, Kip. It's good to be back again. On this podcast, we will take an inductive look at the New Testament, wrapping up an excellent introductory series of discussions on the inductive Bible study method. If you have not yet listened to the previous podcasts, I urge you to do so. They provide solid foundational instruction on how to properly read and interpret the Word of God. These are important keys to understanding, aren't they, Alan? They really are. They make all the difference in the world when you look at books from an inductive perspective and you look at the entire the book in its entirety and, a, and attempt as best you can to discern the mind of the writer. Ultimately, that's that you know it's impossible to crawl into his mind, but nonetheless, he gives clues as to his message, and he does it in the way that he puts together the message and the kind of uh, techniques that he uses to convey the message. So all of that is important in understanding. And it's especially useful going forward as we look at individual books of the Bible in future podcasts. I'm looking forward to that, yes. Okay, on to the New Testament. First, if you could describe the general makeup of the New Testament, how and when did the New Testament come into being? Well, the, the general, the general uh, structure of the book uh, of the New Testament, really, you know, it's comprised, as you know, of 27 books. Um, most of the New Testament is really um, what, what we like to call epistles or a fancy name for letters. So basically you have historical books and you have letters um, to the church. And the historical books are the four Gospels plus the Acts of the Apostles. And then you've got the the rest. All the the twenty two would be would be letters in essence, and of those letters, thirteen are written by the apostle Paul, and nine are called general letters, written by various people: James, Peter, John, Jude, and John the Divine. So basically, the the structure of the New Testament is five historical books, the rest letters. So then, uh, on our last podcast, we discussed the Old Testament. Uh, what then is the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament? That's really a good question. Um, the Old Testament introduces us to the God of the Bible. Um, his, his dealings with human beings, especially the nation of Israel, uh, on, a, on a historical plane, on a, on a historical continuum, so that it is, it is God's acts in history that are recorded in the Old Testament. But, but you know, Jesus Christ then becomes the ultimate act of God in the New Testament, so that the, the, there is continuity between the Testaments. There's also, also some discontinuity between the, the Testaments, but it, it is not fair to say that the Old Testament is law, the New Testament is grace, because the Old Testament is full of grace as well. And indeed, the New Testament has got some law in it, so one has to be very careful in understanding the dichotomy between the two. There is, in fact, continuity. The God of the Old Testament is a covenant God who entered into covenant relationship with the people of Israel and now enters into covenant relationship in the New Testament with the people of God, the church. So in that sense, the, the, the covenant is fulfilled within the confines of the understanding of the church in the 
in the New Testament. And much of the Old Testament points towards the, uh, the New Testament in terms of its prophecy. In Matthew, for example, you've got uh, more than 60 references of Old Testament prophecy that Matthew believes are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So there, there, is, there are, in fact, lines of continuity between the Testaments, but obviously also some discontinuity because Jesus Christ is, is in fact, the ultimate and final revelation of God. So in that sense, the, the, the Testaments combine continuity and discontinuity, if, if you will. Is there a reason to structure the New Testament uh, beginning with the Gospels, then Acts, and then on, on to the Epistles? Well, I, I, yes, I think the New Testament obviously begins with the story of Jesus because you remember when Jesus came into the world that he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I find that incredibly telling because uh, the kingdom of God is the one concept that, that, that runs from Genesis through Revelation. It is the one thing that, um, that marks the thematic line, if you will, that unfolds throughout the scripture, where you've got a God who is God over all, you have a people who trust him, and a place, at first in Eden, and then in the land of promise, and, and then eventually within the human heart. Even the, the Old Testament prophets began to talk about the reality of God reigning over his people within the human heart. So you've got this idea that, that the kingdom of God is ripe. Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, the New Testament uh, is the ultimate expression of the Old Testament. Uh, you know, we often uh, hear about the gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel uh, meaning good news, right? Yeah, ultimately, it means good news, yes, but I mean, um, they define it, uh, I mean, the pure gospel itself is simply this, that God in the fullness of time sent Jesus, the divine Messiah, who ministered in Galilee and Judea, was crucified, dead, buried, raised. That's the gospel. Hmm. And that is, is intrinsic to all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, even within the Gospels, you know, you've got the what we call the synoptics, which are the um, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. Um, and then John is, is uh, you know, even a cursory reading of John will tell you that it is incredibly different from the synoptics. The synoptics are kind of like three rivers. Mark is a fast-flowing rapid. Matthew, uh, Matthew meanders somewhat. And Luke um, is kind of a river in karst country, limestone country, where the, you know it, it, it moves along the surface and then all of a sudden it disappears underground and then it reappears uh, on the surface again. And, and there's, there's a great uh, sense of borrowing of those synoptics. You have, for example, uh, you know, half of Mark is found in, in Luke's gospel. A third of Luke is found in Mark's gospel. Um, so, you know, you've got um, all kinds of uh, relationship between, between them. Um, Mark contains half of Matthew. Um, uh, in fact, Mark contains only 31 verses of its own. All its other verses are found in the other Gospels. Huh. Matthew contains all but 60 verses of Mark. 
Mark has, uh, Mark has 666 verses. No one should read anything yeah. into that. <laughs> it's simply that there's 666 verses. But 606 of those verses are contained also in Matthew. Um, so, you know, they, they, they each borrow, whether they borrow from, um, from, a different, from one, one source, scholars debate. I personally think that Mark is the original gospel. The beginning of Mark and the end of Mark are missing. So unfortunately, there would have been more than 666 verses. But Matthew borrows from Mark, as does Luke. And, and together they tell the, the historical story of Jesus. And, and John then is a little separate because, you know, John, while he tells the story of Jesus, he, he, he couches it in a completely different way. And, um, and, and it, it's a distinct gospel from the other three. And then the Acts of the Apostles basically shows how, um, how would I say, how a small Jewish sect became a major movement in the Roman world. Talks about the spread of the gospel, you know, I mean, and constantly throughout the Acts of the Apostles, the, the church is growing. There's 120, 3,000 are added. Daily people are being added to the church. There are 5,000. There's... Uh, multitudes are, are added more than ever, men and women. Um, they multiplied in Galilee, multiplied in Judea, multiplied in Samaria, and so on and so on. This spreads throughout the whole region. So the Acts of the Apostles continues the story of the Gospels. In fact, Luke says, you know, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do. So John is uh, Luke's rather is referring to the Gospel he wrote. And now he's going to continue that. So, so Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles could be considered two volumes of the same story. One, the story of Christ, and secondly, the story of the spread of the church. Oh. And so, you know, you begin with the Gospels, you continue the, with the growth of the church, and then with the growth of the church, you have the letters written to the church to encourage them to essentially live out their Christian faith. And the letters address many concerns, many problems within the church. So it's, it would be appropriate to have that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, breakdown with the Gospels, the advance of the church, problems in the church that are being addressed in the epistles. And then finally in the book of Revelation, you have the, the, the situation where um, Christians are being persecuted for their faith in Rome. And John the Divine is writing to encourage them in their faith that one day they will be vindicated hmm. and God will Christ will come again and so on so yeah I mean there's a flow to the new to the New Testament that wasn't really one one doesn't really get in the Old Testament um, one does get with the historical books but with the New Testament one one basically flows from one concept one idea from history to teaching, doctrine, and Christian living, and then finally encouragement. Huh. And, and in fact, Revelation, if I may continue for a moment, Revelation brings to an end the book in, in such majestic ways. You know, I mean, it, it, the, the, the Bible begins in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so it really is. It brings, it brings the entire biblical witness to an end. 
Um, you know, Genesis talks about God making two great lights, the sun and the moon. Whereas in uh, Revelation, you know, John the Divine says that this city, this, this new heaven and new earth, it they doesn't, they doesn't need a sun. Um, in the beginning, of course, you have in Genesis the, the usurper, the deceiver, the Satan, if you will. And, and in the Revelation, he is conquered forever. He disappears and so on. So um, Revelation brings the entire biblical witness to a fitting conclusion. So I, I, I think the New Testament, to answer your question, I, I think the New Testament, in the way that it is structured, um, flows so beautifully from Matthew, which, by the way, because you know, Matthew is, is, is writing to the Jews, and he's he's looking back and and he's saying now then let me let me let me place Christ in history for you, and so this you know the first chapter is a is a genealogy from from Adam to Abraham and Abraham to David and David uh, to to Joseph and Jesus. Hmm. So he is bringing in the Old Testament witness right into the heart of the New Testament as the New Testament begins. Well, this is so interesting. I mean, the the four Gospels as you describe how they borrow from one another. Why four Gospels? Why not just one? I mean, maybe two. John, obviously, being so different. Yeah. Yeah, but you know one of the great, one of the great things that there's more than one? These Gospels differ with each other ever so slightly. Mm -hmm. They record different things. Each, each Gospel writer has a different purpose in mind, what he's attempting to communicate. And the details, especially during the Passion Week, it's what scholars have, have, known, have called the, the synoptic problem because all the details don't quite fit together. So the three synoptics don't always agree on the details and the sequence of events. Now, if there was only one gospel, you would never know that. Right. But if there are three gospels and they disagree with each other, in, in the slight details, then it seems to me that that is a marvelous argument for the authenticity of the story. Because if it was a make-believe story, <laughs> they, they would all agree with each other. There would just be one gospel. Right. But in fact, because there are three, I think is one of the greatest arguments for the authenticity of, uh, of the story. Of Jesus. I, I think of it oftentimes as an action is happening and you have three different photographers taking pictures from different angles. You're going to get the same as the essence of the same story, but you're going to get little details. Uh, you're going to perceive things differently, ever so slightly even. That, that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. It's exactly right. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. There, there is a, a Jewish law at the time of Jesus that if, um, if, if all the witnesses agreed with each other, the the uh, the accused was acquitted. <laughs> <laughs> I like that because they believed that it was um, a conspiracy. Yeah, well, that makes sense. So you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Moving on then to Paul, why do you think he he in particular was so prolific? Yes, he. I mean, yeah, he's. Um, we believe that he's written thirteen of the twenty-seven books now. That's, that's half the number of books approximately, but of course not ha half the volume because um, some of his epistles are really quite small. Paul, of course, is the, is the, the mind of the, the New Testament. Uh, Paul, is, as you're aware, was a, was a great uh, Jewish scholar. 
who encountered Jesus uh, when he was least expecting it. He was, he was a persecutor of the church. He basically didn't want to have anything to do with this, what this sect, this, this Nazar, the sect of the Nazarene, this Jesus person. He just, um, it was an anathema to him. Yeah. And he was sent out to, in fact, obliterate uh, the church and, and became one of its chief proponents. You know, the thing that I love about the Apostle Paul is the fact that you know he 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 basically um, in, interprets the Gospels. I think it's important to read the Gospels before one reads the Apostle Paul, because Paul is writing a commentary. He's he's explaining the teachings of Jesus in many ways and expanding upon those upon those teachings. Um, so it's important always to see Paul within the context of the gospel, mm. uh, rather than, than Paul just simply on his own. Um, and of course, you know, in, in, in um, the, the basic format of, the, of the, the epistles, you know, he begins with his name, uh, his qualifications, if you will. You know, the way we stick our name at the end of a letter, which is really quite curious when you think about it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have to... That's why everybody, when they get a letter, they look at the bottom to see who it's from. You know, whereas, you know, Paul says, I, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, or whatever the case might be. And then he goes in to talk about his theological perspective, his understanding of, um, of, of a particular theological point. And then on the basis of the doctrine, he then says, then this is how we should live on the basis of this understanding of of theology, and he does that essentially in almost all his um, his officials and his officials, and, and then he he ends, of course, with a greeting and salutation, which uh, and that's the basic form all, all the way along. But always, always this um, didactic approach, this uh, this desire to teach, um, this desire to explain, to help one understand. What, who Christ is and his relationship to, to the Father um, and, and the meaning of his death and, and resurrection and, and so on. Um, and then on the basis of it, this then is how we should live. So that's, um, that's the Apostle Paul. Obviously, a lot of similarities in his letters. Uh, and he's writing to a lot of different churches in the area writing words of encouragement or admonition or but you know Romans is so so highly regarded in Christian theology but so many of these smaller shorter letters are so very powerful they are um Paul is said to have, have written 13 we believe that he's written 13 letters almost almost half the books in the new testament of those nine are what we call ecclesiastical letters um, the, the letters to Rome to the Corinthians to Galatians Ephesians Philippians Colossians and Thessalonians we would say that that's essentially those are the ecclesiastical they were written to churches mm. and, and they were written to churches with specific problems that he was trying to address the one exception is uh, the letter to the Ephesians because it does not address a particular problem and and um, as a result, we tend to think that that may very well have been a circular letter going to all the churches uh, by way of encouragement to, to all the churches. But the one, the extent cap copy um, 
was was the one to the Ephesians, and so we call it the Epistle to the Ephesians. But essentially, those nine books are the ecclesiastical letters. Hmm. By contrast, you've got he wrote four what we call pastoral epistles or pastoral letters. He wrote to a particular person, and he wrote to Timothy, to Titus, and Philemon, and uh, two letters to to Timothy, which make up the uh, the four. Um, and, and essentially to Timothy, Timothy has become a leader in the church, as is Titus. And basically he's writing a manual of operations on those pastoral letters. To Timothy he's addressing um, what, what it means to be a leader in the church. He's addressing, so it's kind of a manual of operation. Um, to Second Timothy he's dealing with how, we, how you combat um, heresy and so forth as leaders within the church. Uh, to Titus, he's talking about how um, people should conduct themselves, a manual of Christian conduct. Hmm. Uh, to Philemon, he's talking about the relationship uh, to, of a slave to a master and a master to a slave. So those are the, are the, are the pastoral ones. The, the ecclesiastical ones, you're right. I mean, they, they vary, they vary but, but, but the reality is that most of them are addressing a specific problem that needs to be addressed. Romans, of course, is the great Magna Carta of the right. New Testament. Um, you know, I, I, I'm personally convinced if you, if you understand the book of Romans or you know, seek to understand the book of Romans, you basically have Christian theology down. <laughs> you, I mean, you could basically summarize all Christian theology in the book of Romans. It is an incredible, incredible book. It talks about the law, the relationship of law to grace and and the nature of salvation, how we become, uh, how we move into a justified relationship with God, um, how our sins are forgiven. And then he talks about not only justification, how we, we become right with God, but how we maintain that and how we grow in our faith, what we like to call sanctification. And then even he, he goes right into the doctrine of glorification of what it'll be like um, at the end times when the world will reach its great finale, if you will. So yeah, Romans, and, but even Romans, you see, you've got basically 11 chapters that talk about doctrine, um, justification by faith, sanctification, glorification. And then in chapter 12, notice, you know, he turns abruptly to this then on the basis of the theology, this is how we should act. Now, I beseech you therefore, brethren, he says, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So. So essentially he has moved from doctrine to ethics, if you will. Hmm. But the, the whole point of, of understanding, you know, one would be tempted oftentimes just to look at the ethics, you know, the practical stuff. This is how we should live. But the ethics do not make sense unless they are rooted and grounded in the doctrine and theology of the first part of each of his letters. So... So understanding, you know, basically he gives the, 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 the rationale. The first part of his epistles are the rationale. They're, they're the, the foundation on which we should base our lives. And then he goes on to spell out what that means in terms of basing our lives on the basis of his understanding or the understanding that he brings to mind for the reader of the work uh, and power and position um, and relationship of the Christian uh, to, to God in Christ. Well, Paul obviously 
uh, a central character in the New Testament. Um, but let's talk about the other letters. Um, what prompted their writing? What made them worthy of being part of the canon of Scripture? You're talking basically about the nine remaining books because yeah. you've got Pauline. Pauline has got Pauline's epistles are thirteen historical books are five, so that leaves nine. And you've got um, basically, in essence, they they were written with the same kind of uh, motivation of the Apostle Paul, um, but with 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 a different um, uh, uh, topic, if you will. Um, you know, for example, the book of Hebrews, uh, which is a marvelous, marvelous book, um, basically is written to, to Jews. These Jews who had become Christians were going through intense persecution. And many of them uh, were tempted to revert back to Judaism. And basically the writer is, is telling them, listen, uh, let, let me help you understand that why you why you do want to continue to embrace Christ, and and not revert to uh, to the Old Testament. That you live in the light of the New Testament rather than the Old Testament. And so you've got, um, you know, basically he talks about how Christ is superior to anyone in the Old Testament, and he cites people like Moses. He cites people like Joshua. Uh, he cites the angels and so on. And then a little later, he, he basically explains that Christianity is so much superior to, uh, to Judaism. And he does it in a number of ways. Um, he talks about the limitations of Judaism and the whole cultic system of the, of the Jews and, and how Christ has broken down all those barriers and, and, and given a sense of, um, of, of freedom. So when, when we get towards the end, of the uh, of the book, and by the way, there's a great there's a great appreciation in in that book for the Old Testament. So, for example, the heroes of the faith that that he just one after another, but he constantly points out the fact that they were they were in relationship with God, not by virtue of um, of, of of the Old Testament cult, but they were in relationship to God by virtue of their faith. And he demonstrates that over and over. And then when he gets towards the end of the book, I think in chapter 13, you know, he says, listen, when it comes to worship, we've not come to Mount Sinai, uh, but we've come to Mount Zion. And he contrasts Sinai with Zion. And the contrast is absolutely magnificent in chapter 13. And he talks about the wonder and the grace and the, the amazing uh, things that one encounters through worshiping uh, on Mount Zion, which basically is what we as, as New Testament believers ascribe to. And, and Revelation, the other great general epistle, was written, as I've mentioned before, it was written to first century Christians who were going through enormous, um, enormous uh, persecution. And, and the, John is simply writing them, encouraging them. He's giving them a picture of heaven and, and he's telling them, you know, that, uh, that they will be vindicated and, and the world will be destroyed and the devil will be destroyed and, and all the hosts of evil will be destroyed and ushering in this, this new heaven and new earth of which they will be part. It, it, 
it was just a glorious vision that he was sharing to encourage those poor saints who were being fed to the lions and and burned to the stake and that's why that's that's why those early christians when they were being burned at the stake astounded their audience in the arenas by singing praise to god in the midst of the flames and in the midst of the lions yeah wow these words were written uh the authorship of of some of these books is uh, cast in doubt does that matter no it really doesn't you know for example we don't know who wrote the book of hebrews um we, we just don't know i mean some people have suggested the apostle paul but even a cursory reading of hebrews it just doesn't sound like paul and hebrews does not identify the author could it have been apollos um i think Paulus is probably the best bet but we we don't know and um you know, I, I think authorship, while, while it's intriguing, is not essential, I mean, to, to understanding what the book is about, what the essential message is, what the purpose is in writing it, and, and how, that, um, how that's flashed out or fleshed out. Last, on the last podcast about the Old Testament, we talked about how the Old Testament seems to get short shrift versus the, uh, the New Testament what, what's your take on that? I mean, in what ways do these writings um, help us live a, a more Christ-centered life? I think the New Testament is very specific in telling us how we should live. Um, it, there's, there's a lot of very practical, down-to-earth things, both to encourage us in our faith and to direct us in our faith in very specific ways. This is how we should deal with problems. This is how we should uh, understand our, our relationship with God. This is, this is the armor that we should put on to withstand the, the fiery darts of the evil one. You know, so it's very practical in that sense. And of course, it all relates to, it's all a throwback to the teachings of Jesus. Because the epistles, again, the, the understanding the epistles, to understand it aright, they, we must understand that teaching as, as it emerges from the Gospels. Mm. And, and for Christians, of course, the central figure of our faith is Jesus Christ. And so getting to know Jesus, you know, it's kind of like um, Christianity is kind of, you know, is, is a love relationship with God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, Jesus is tangible. And so that's why I think that we, we gravitate towards the Gospels and we gravitate towards uh, the teachings that emerge from the Gospels in the form of the epistles. And in that sense, I think the Old Testament gets shortchanged. But what we need to bear in mind is that, um, that what we're doing is, you know, as Christians, we have a love relationship with God, we say, as revealed in Jesus Christ, but also as revealed in the acts of God in the Old Testament. And so we can get to know and love the God of the, of the Bible, not just from the New Testament, but also from the Old as well. I'm going to shift gears a little bit here, and, and let's talk about the missions work you do. Um, what is the first thing that you tell people about why IBS? Well, uh, you know, it's essentially, you know, the, the people that we teach are, are generally pastors and church leaders. Not always, that's not always the case, especially here at, 
at home in the domestic field, you know, we, we do seminars and so on for, for local churches. But overseas, we focus essentially on, um, on people in universities, in seminaries, and those who are already uh, pastors and working as church, as church leaders. And what I tell them right from the get-go is that God's people deserve the very best. By that I mean that, you know, they, they don't want any, any just blessed little thoughts on a Sunday. People are come to church and they're, they're hurting and they've uh, they come with all kinds of problems and all kinds of distresses and their hearts are often lacerated and the last thing you want to give them is just a nice blessed little thought to send them on their way. Mm-hmm. So I believe that um, that we encourage our our students and our pastors and those who will minister to tens and hundreds and thousands that uh, they need to be diligent in understanding God's word in order to communicate it. You know, you, you cannot communicate something unless you fully, completely understand it. And so we help with the process of understanding. And we do that by means of, of teaching them new ways of looking at the text. You know, we all fall into these kind of bad habits of, uh, of reading little bits and pieces of the Bible and, you know, reading into... The text what we think it's saying or we, we read into something that's that uh, basically substantiates our, our our theological position you know we read it as Baptists or we read it as Presbyterians or we read it as Roman Catholics or we read it as Pentecostals and what we try to do is we tell them no let's let the Bible speak to you don't be telling the Bible what it says um, let let the Bible tell you what it says, and and here are the tools that will help you hear what God is saying through His wonderful Word. So we don't teach doctrine; we teach them diligent methods of understanding, and um, and and show them how you apply that to the text in order to get at the mind of the writer. Because the important thing is understanding what the writer is trying to say. And again, you know, when people go to church on Sunday, they, they, don't, they really don't want to hear the ramblings of a preacher. They come to hear what God has to say to them, to speak into their, their situations, their heartaches, their joys, their sorrows. They want a word from the Lord. And so we basically are trying to help pastors and church leaders do a much better job. So then my final big question is, where do we start with the inductive process? Where do you start? Well, essentially, you start with the text. But you, you, you know, you, you need to understand first of all that uh, the text has a context. You know, it's it's often been said if you take a text out of its context, it becomes a pretext. <laughs> you know, and that's that's really true. You know, so what we do is we teach contextual study. That is to say, every passage, every verse has a context and the context the the immediate context is the book in which the verse is found the ultimate context is the canon but we start essentially with the book as a whole the whole is greater than the sum of its parts so we start with a whole and work to the parts we don't start with the parts and postulate the whole so that's what that would be the starting point
I remember you once gave me a really interesting piece of advice. You said, uh, we were talking about the book of Revelation, and you said, read it once really fast, and then go back and read it slow. And I think uh, that was really good advice, because if you can read through it fast, like you're reading a novel, and get the sort of major message points or themes or, or ideas, a big picture, and then go back and go through it slowly, you get such a much richer experience reading it. Yeah, that's exactly true. You know, you get a feel for the writer when you read it through quickly. And, and initially getting that feel for the writer, I think, is a really good first step. I mean, people are so eager to start, you know, making notes. And, and I say, don't make notes to start with. Just enjoy it. You know, get your feet up, um, make yourself comfortable and just read it through and see, what, uh, see where it leads. Mm. Um, but, you know, the problem that we often encounter, invariably encounter, is that everybody wants to interpret the Bible. We all want to be interpreters. But there's a stage before interpretation, which is called observation. And observation is a lovely science. It is observation that we concentrate on to help people observe what is there. Because you can never answer the question, what is the meaning of what is here, until you first answer the question, what is here? So we basically teach them to understand and to answer the question, what is here? Well, stay tuned for future podcasts of The Word is Out as we go book by book in search of truth and understanding inside God's Word. And of course, uh, we'll pepper in podcasts featuring special guests, including an upcoming chat with Lyle Zulu, who is a graduate of The Word is Out program and is in Zambia now training up local pastors in the IBS method to reach out to their communities. Yeah, we're excited about what he's doing in Lusaka. We have established a Center for Biblical Understanding in which uh, Lael and others are doing the training. Um, I'll be traveling myself to, to Zambia to, uh, to take part in a, a conference there um, in July. And um, it's exciting to see the interest in some, some of the, the, the church leaders in Zambia, including uh, the chap who is the... Um, chaplain to the president of the country, you know, has told us that this is the great need of the church in, in Zambia. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing. It's exciting. Plenty of good conversation to come. You've been listening to The Word is Out, a podcast on a mission featuring Dr. Alan Meenan. If you'd like to know more about The Word is Out, visit us online at www.thewordisout.com. You can also keep up to date through our Facebook page, We'll be back with another podcast soon. 